Y'all, welcome back to Kentucky Fried Wargaming, where two guys who aren't qualified to talk about anything decide to talk about a game with hard math and chance. I'm Joe. And I'm John. And ooh, y'all, we are back with another episode of the podcast that I think might end up being a long one. And uh, for those of you who stick to the end, I'm just going to go ahead and thank you at the top of this thing. Because we have, you are in for a treat. Um, John and I have spent the past week reading Broken Realms Bellicor and everything that happens in it. And sort of digesting it and taking it in. And we thought, it, after seeing uh, sort of how many views the Techless video got, that y'all might like another video of the same style, but with the new book, Bellicor. So that's what we're going to do today's episode. And uh, John, are you ready? I mean, as ready as I can be. Like, we've spent all week reading this thing. Ugh, and I got opinions about it. I think this one was... I enjoyed this one more than Techless. So it was a joy to read. I don't want to, like, imply that it was, like, a slog or anything. I definitely enjoyed it. It's just, there's a lot that happens within this book. Yeah, we were talking before the show about how Teclas is just kind of a... The Lumineth win, and then the Lumineth win. They kind of lose, but then they win again. And, like, they, it was just win, win, win. It was like a, a Teclas propaganda piece. Um, this story in Bellicor has, like, so many different factions and facets, and there's so much that happens in this book that kind of affect the narrative as a whole to really kind of, like... It takes us some, some places... It does. It does. And I feel like whereas Teclas had a whole lot of like overwhelming victories, here it's a whole lot of Pyrrhic victories at best. Like, we'll get to it at the end. I think there is only a single faction that had what I would call a win all around. Everybody else was Pyrrhic victories at best. And many yep. just lost. Yeah. And I think that makes it really interesting. Uh, and I can't wait to jump into it. But first, hobby progress. Um, we're going to keep this one kind of short this week just because of how long we suspect this episode's going to get if we blabber just in general. And if we blabber on about too much hobby progress, we're going to make it even longer. So very quickly, John, what you been up to? Reading. Ah, well, yeah, there is that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's. Uh, I haven't really worked on Skaven or any of my models recently. Uh, still kind of building a new hobby space. So I've just been reading books. Just been re just <laughs> chucking through books. Like, that's about it. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Um, my week was largely similar. Reading through this and taking notes and stuff. Um, also, I got the orcs uh, finished up and I got basing material on their bases uh, i just gotta throw on some grass and they should be instagram ready so uh now that we aren't going to be like preparing for this episode yeah, be prepared to see that coming in the next day or two um, hot orc summer hot orc summer continues um yeah super excited and after they're prepared i'll be moving on to gabapalooza 2 electric boogaloo Oh, yeah. Goblin boys. <sighs> so many. It's going to hurt me. But alas, I Playing must push on. Playing hacky sack outside the Whole Foods. Until they shank you. That's why they're the best. Um, but I must push through. So that way we could have goblins versus Beast of Chaos. And it will just be the hottest garbage battle of all time. Can't wait. Um, 
yeah, I think that's pretty much all I did. It's been a lot of reading this and preparing, and it was just a busy week for me outside of sort of hobby stuff. So it happens. It happens. Try to pick back up hobby in this week. Um, moving on, though, to the episode proper. See, guys, it was most of our hobby time. Oh, John, I'm very ready to talk about Bellicor. I, I, too, am very ready to talk about Bellicor. But first... You need to tell me about Act 1, because I think you really want to talk about Act 1. I do. I'm very excited about Act 1. Uh, but to make it make a little sense, I have to kind of talk about the first Broken Realms book very briefly, uh, entitled Broken Realms Marathi, because this book overlaps with the events there. Um, you know, the, the precipitating incidents for this book happened in Morathi. So if you don't know kind of what happened there to cause the start of this, it will kind of be a little confusing. So in the first Broken Realms book, Broken Realms Morathi, uh, it is largely about Morathi, the sort of leader of the Daughters of Cain, a, a titanic figure from the old world, sort of wheeling and dealing and murdering. Uh, making her play for godhood and betraying a bunch of her allies in the process. And she has this actually really clever plan to make that happen that has multiple steps involved and various factions that she pulls in from to, to ascend to godhood. Uh, but two of the factions involved was one, they needed to get a material from... Uh, the a place called the Eight Points. Uh, this is a place where chaos has come to dominate. It is a almost a chaos realm on its own. And this Eight Points has realm gates to all of the realms, every one, which makes it highly valuable strategically for chaos. And it also makes it dangerous for all of the other realms. Because chaos could pour through these gates into the other realms. And in Broken Realms Marathi, uh, essentially Marathi and Sigmar convinced Alariel, the goddess of life, to open the gate, the Genesis gate, as they call it, which is the gate from her realm of light to chaos. Well, realm of life to chaos. And it was a kind of a, a big trust thing for her because we had spent so long in the first novel series for Age Sigmar called The Realmgate Wars trying to shut this door that to open it again was dangerous. But they did so to try to uh, sort of impede Chaos's plans to, to, to break into his ear and open other gates. And while there, uh, the Stormcast were betrayed by Marathi and essentially left for dead and they were getting slaughtered and a handful were sort of running on foot, sprinting across the chaos wastes to try to get back to the to the Genesis Gate in the realm of life. And that's where this book pops up, at that gate. Uh, act, it's a three-act series, as all of the Broken Realms books have been so far. And Act 1 opens with uh, a Stormcast Chamber uh, led by Gardas Steel Soul holding this gate uh, with his chamber and his uh, sort of close uh, lieutenant, uh, Loris Grimm. And their job is that while this gate is open, they have to push chaos back from pouring through into the realm of life. 
And the Sylvanath are waging a guerrilla war on other sides of the gate, trying to, like, push Nurgle back so that way they don't get flanked on both sides. But it is a battle that is hard fought, to say the least. And the first part of the book sort of shows just how hard the Stormcast are fighting to keep this gate open. Because if this gate closes, all of the Stormcast that are fleeing across the Chaos Waste will have nowhere to flee to. They will die. And not just, like, die and go to he zap back to heaven, but potentially be captured by chaos. Uh, which, you know, could be real death for them. Which is horrendous. Uh, the Stormcast are sort of immortal warriors that when they die, f their souls fly back to his ear on a bolt of lightning. To be remade and resent back down. So the idea that real death could be a, po uh, a fate for these brethren... Uh, really kind of pushes those holding the gate to higher heights of uh, discipline. Yeah, doesn't Garda's Steel Soul, like, vow upon his life and his honor to hold this gate no matter the cost? Yeah, um, that's sort of his deal. Uh, Gardas was a big character in the Realm Gate Warm books. He's one of the two that we sort of followed around trying to keep, uh, trying to find Alariel, wake her up, and then seal this gate. Um and he is known for being sort of steadfast in the face of uh, absolute annihilation. Um, just to kind of like prove how hard of a character he is. In the Realm Gate Wars, uh, he was fighting a battle alongside uh, a handful of Stormcast brothers and the Sylvaneth in an overwhelming battle against uh, a bunch of Nurgle demons who are pouring through a Nurgle gate into the realm and they just they were going to lose and in the sickest bro move uh Gardas Steel Soul pissed off a great unclean one got it to chase him and then he dove through the gate into Nurgle's realm knowing the great unclean one behind him would storm forward and crush the gate Sealing him in Nurgle's realm for what he thought was permanently to close the gate so that his allies could have a chance of victory. Like, what a champion. Yeah, he's he's totally down with making the sacrifice play. He's hard as hell. He's very cool. Uh, so him holding this gate completely outnumbered is believable. But it is a the book shows that this is a hard fight. That they are out, outnumbered, you know, 5 to 10 to 20 to 1. And even though they cut down... 10, uh, you know, five or 10 enemy soldiers for every one of them that fall, that they aren't going to make it. Uh, there's just too much. They're the, you know, sort of the, the foes coming through the gate in front of them. And then eventually, uh, they're sort of on this like floating waterfall Island, kind of like something out of the movie Avatar with like the cat people. Um, with the cat people. You know, with the cat people. Not like the great earthbenders and stuff, but like the cat people. Um, and eventually Nurgle and all of their forces start crawling up behind them. So now they're fighting a two-pronged battle. They are flanked entirely. And they are just trying to hold out. And that's... It's looking rough. However, there's a moment of hope. That I I absolutely love. Uh, as Gardas is fighting, off to the side, he hears sort of a rustling in the forest, and then a light. And coming out of the trees 
are giant reptilian warriors, bedecked in gold with weapons made of moonstone. Prepare, like, and as a few come out, more come out, and then a ton of them, and it's an army of the Seraphon. And Gardas is sort of thinking to himself, you know, I don't know much about them. They're kind of enigmatic, but they I know they hate chaos as much as we do. And he thinks the day is saved. And he expects that, like, they're going to come crush these chaos followers on the flank and stomp them into dust. And as he is ready for them to come and assist him, the army walks by them. <laughs> it is this colossal gateway that they are battling in sort of like the middle of and they just sort of oh let me scooch y'all by ya and all, <laughs> oh 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 my bad let me just scooch y'all by yeah oops, and oops, they oops. walk past them through the gate into the chaos wastes not a word <laughs> said nothing sort of not a sorry nair a, a little uh polite nod just Bye, y'all. <laughs> I'm just I'm just picturing Lord Croak floating by in his little palaquin, and he just looks over at Guard of Steel, so goes, oh, man, that sucks. Anyways, we're going to go over to Arby's. Come on now, boys. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's... God, I love this scene, because in sort of the the battle tomes, they, uh, they have been very clear in the Seraphon battle tomes that the Seraphon are not the good guys like you probably imagine good guys are. Um, they are enigmatic and in un they're sort of impossible to understand. They, they are celestial beings born from the stars. It's sort of from the great old ones. And their only goal is to stop chaos. And they are looking beyond this dimension into others to sense the future. And the, every decision they make is based on that incredibly grand scheme. And to them, a lot of the stuff in the moment is irrelevant. You know, like the life of a townsfolk or like these uh, Stormcast don't matter to them. In the great scheme, not really part of the plan. So, well, yeah, they're they're very pragmatic. Like they're they they only look at the forest. They do not look at the trees. <laughs> nope. No, they're very very one minded, and uh, this is a great example of that. That they just leave these stormcasts to be slaughtered. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> and uh, they walk off into the chaos wastes, and. Um, as they do so, um, you end up actually following them. Um, and you find out that they have been dispatched here, this big army, by Lord Croak. He is a, a Seraphon wizard who is like a, he was a toad, a slon as they call them. Who was, you know, one of the greatest wizards in the realm, and he defied death, and he now is the leader of the Seraphon. He's the most powerful amongst them, the biggest knowledge. He's sort of, uh, for like a cultural touchstone, sort of like a Doctor Strange for them. He is, you know, he is that high of a magic user that he just knows more than many can comprehend. I think you're underselling the fact that he is a like five foot tall, giant, fat frog man that floats on a palaquin and casts spells that other people can't comprehend. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he floats across the battlefield as a skeleton inhabited form, just wreaking havoc and sundering mountains with small words from his uh, sort of atrophied vocal cords. Uh, he is horrifying. And he yeah. he is the one who directly told this army of Seraphon to attack a specific target, no matter the cost. Whatever happens, you hit this target. And it's very clear that nothing else matters. And for the Seraphon, that target is a silver tower. Um, uh, this is a sort of like a wizard's tower for a zinch demon uh, known as a gaunt summoner. They're horrible, horrible demonic entities who corrupt the world itself and summon forth hordes of gibbering demons to flay, destroy, and melt the living. And they are sort of like the researchers, the big brains of the Chaos Armies. You know, walking the line between madness and enlightenment. And they pursue this in their wizard's towers, known as silver towers. These large towers made of pure silver and geomantic forms uh, with hosts of magical uh, fonts, traps, and beings living inside of it that they have full control over in their domain. And before this point, they were kind of unassailable. Um, We've seen Silver Towers in the lore before, and in fact, there was a, a board game a long while back where you played a group of adventurers who accidentally went through a portal and got trapped in a Silver Tower. And you were trying to fight your way out of, you know, through the tower to find a way out. But at no point was there ever someone who went like, yeah, we should break this tower. Like, it was unsiegeable. Unless, apparently, you're Seraphod. With a very, very determined goal. Uh, and specifically, their worry is that this gaunt summoner has been uh, messing with the geomantic energies of the realm gates. All across the realms in the Age of Sigmar, there are gates that can lead to other realms. Some are big and well-known, some are small and hidden and only known to a few people. And hasn't this Gaunt Summoner been like performing ex like experiments using the uh, Realm Stone from the Eight Points? Yeah, right. Yeah, Veronite, uh, which is yeah, Veronite, Veronite. It is Chaos Corruption solidified, even more pure than Warp Stone. Um, it is a horribly, horribly dangerous substance that, if able to be refined, could be devastating. Uh, in particular, it, they're worried that he could be trying to corrupt these gates using Veronite. And if that were to happen, it would throw off the entire, you know, geomantic energies of the cosmos. And that's why the Seraphon cannot let this happen. So uh, the book sort of follows the Seraphon army as quickly as they can, storming across the realms. Uh, sort of these beings that shine starlight wherever they go in a landscape that is sort of like how a lot of cultures would define hell uh blood red skies that literally rain blood upon those below them uh where the land itself will swallow people whole and consume you 
And every second there is agony for the Seraphon because they are anathema to chaos. But also every second they are there, it is agony for that realm. So it riles up resistance and they have uh, a variety of hordes of like Zangors and Beastmen who try to stop them. And as quickly as possible, the Seraphon smash through them and keep punching forward. And, you know, every time a soldier gets pulled into the earth, there's no time to save him. Keep going. Oh, yeah. That's just a constant implacable advance forward. Yeah. Uh, there is nothing else that matters. They're a single-minded species who just keep going. And as they go across the realms, they finally get close to the Silver Tower. And there's a number of cool battles that happen in between here. Uh, but really, it's all building up to them reaching the tower. And the reason that you find that they ended up leaving the Stormcast was that they're in a small window of opportunity. Uh, normally, these silver towers allow the Gaunt Summoners to see everything across their realm for a huge distance with uh, sort of these disembodied eyes, kind of like the Eye of Sauron, for those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans. And it means that they're just hard to surprise. They're always going to be prepared. However, this Gaunt Summoner was trying currently to kill the remaining Stormcast fleeing across the Eight Points. He wanted them for himself. And his single-minded focus to try to torture, kill, and capture them had distracted him. So they had to make it to his tower before he either succeeded... Or got bored and looked away. And just as they make it to his tower, he sort of realizes what is happening and sends his defenses against them. Hordes of gibbering demons and flying manta rays tearing at the Seraphon and rending them. And the Seraphon give as good as they get. Uh, and there's actually some really cool moments where like the Slan uses some of the spells from the tabletop. Uh, for example, there's a spell on the tabletop where the Slon can allow a unit to essentially defy gravity and fly, uh, regardless of what it is. So in the book, they win the aerial battle by the Slon granting the gift of flight to all of their dinosaur riders. So that, like, flying dinosaurs shoot up into the sky and start killing all the air units. God. And I love that sentence. Yeah, <laughs> right? There's not a bad word in that sentence. That's just cool all the way down. Um, and they get the air superiority this way. And then they bring up Bastilodons, which are Ankylosauruses. Shout out to Ankylosaurus. It's the best dinosaur. I will be taking no discussion on the topic. They bring up their Ankylosauruses with uh, giant gems on their shells. And these gems sort of start to glow with this radiant light. And then with a huge ex boom, like a sonic boom, the energy releases and it releases a huge beam of energy at the silver tower. And they, you know, fire in sequence and they shoot again and again and again with everyone dying to just give them time to shoot. And they all are shooting the same spot but they don't tell you why in the moment. However, they're very effective. Uh, as you would imagine from a race that is this magically potent, this energy beam 
is also very potent. And it damages the ship enough that the Gaunt Summoner decides, you know what? Fine, I'm out of here. I'm just going to leave. Because uh, Silver Towers can traverse the realms. They are that powerful of items. That's why there's only, I think, eight of them? Nine they're of them? kind of like spaceships. Like, they're kind of just like mortal realm spaceships. Yeah, they're kind of like honest. rockets, I think, is how I would put it. Big cylindrical items that, like, fly. So, as he feels the ship getting damaged, he decides to leave. And he shoots up into the heavens, leaving all of the Seraphon below on the ground. And as he f shoots up from the eight points high up into the void above the realms, essentially kind of like space, he expects that, like, all right, I'm safe now. I at least got out of there. I'll start looking at the damage and see exactly what they did to my uh, tower. And then the ship starts to rock again, and he's sort of thrown around, and he realizes he's being shot again. And as he sort of, like, uh, turns a wall translucent so that he can see through it, he sees <laughs> arrayed around him an armada of ships from the Seraphon. <laughs> it's a space fight in a fantasy game. <laughs> <laughs> I... Ah, uh, this is so cool. It hurts me. Um, it, I like Age of Sigmar, and it's great and all. But to know that we can have space fights in Age of Sigmar, oh, uh, <laughs> it's a Star War. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, all shields to front. Um, yeah, I mean. It's not so much like Star Destroyers and stuff, but they, they are definitely big magic ships in the void. Um, and as he looks around, there are a number of these ships, all with like dragon heads and stuff on the front, sort of like uh, prow pieces. Well, and don't they look like uh, pyramids? Like Some the, of them do. Uh, most of them look like pyramids because they're the smaller ones. Uh, but there are some bigger ones that do look ship-like. Um, oh, okay. And one of those big ones, the biggest of them, is actually Croak's personal ship. And it's staring it at this silver tower. You know, obviously this was his plan all along. This was why he dispatched all of the forces on the ground. And as, you know, it floats up into space and ev all of these ships opened fire. And... They begin hitting home, and the ship rocks and jostles, and they shoot it and damage it severely. However, it manages to jump away, which is odd, because the great plan said that it died there. Um, however, this ship sort of falls from the cosmos and back down to the realms, and it lands in the realm of metal, the called Shaman. Um... And as it lands on the ground below, it, it has a rough landing and leaves a huge gouge in the earth behind it where it crash lands. But it's still intact, and the Gaunt Summoner is still alive. But it's got holes across the ship uh, that are sort of uh, starting to spew little bits of chaos energy. And these are sort of the fonts of magic that keep this thing running. You can think of them like ship reactors in uh, sci-fi. And as he sort of hops out of his ship to look at the damage, he thinks like, oh, I should really start to repair this. From behind him comes another 
Seraphon army, an army that has been in the realm of metal waiting for just such an occurrence for who knows how long. And it opens fire on his ship. It hits the spot where the reactors are. It cracks them. And there's a moment where sound disappears and light is all that exists in the realm. And then an explosion on a scale that humanity, like ourselves in real life, have never made. It is bigger than any bomb that we have. And it leaves a furrow that is hundreds of miles wide as a crater. As, a, as this ship explodes and takes all of the Seraphon around it with it. And takes everything within thousands of miles as well with it and it is a colossal explosion uh, it destroys entire cities it destroys multiple outposts it wrecks the wildlife turns them all to dust and when sort of the light disappears nothing but a giant crater is left in this huge sprawl that used to be a living inhabited section of the realm and it is <sighs> In that sense, the Seraphon get a victory. They destroyed this ship. They stopped the threat to the realm gates. Or so they thought. Uh, when the ship explodes and this, uh, you know, force ripples across the realm, the realm gates in that realm that are touched by it are distorted. You know, it is pure chaos energy that is sent out in this shockwave that rolls across the realm. And when this wave interacts with the realm gates that, as I mentioned before, are dotted across the realms, many of which are in the middle of like cities that they use them as ways to trade. Um, these gates react poorly. Uh, some uh, simply crumble. Uh, others begin to flicker and, you know, come in and out of existence. But some start spewing chaos into the world um like i sort think of like a torrent from a fire hydrant that has burst but every drop that touches you causes your skin to turn to tentacles or to disintegrate into pus or you know <laughs> <laughs> you went there like you went all the way for it <laughs> i did it is awful and these these descriptions are terrifying um the people who are around these gates when this happened are turned into gibbering monsters or are disintegrated into bubbling goo. Uh, it is chaos incarnate spewing from these realm gates that are really turned. And it begins to sort of pollute the areas around them. And, you know, for the Seraphon, this is an unfortunate collateral damage but it saves all of the rest of the gates, so it's sort of an acceptable loss. Um, however, it is this event that sets up the rest of the other two acts. Because as you come to see, the information they were working on was not necessarily from the stars, but was rather a hidden message from the big villain of this book, Bellacor. It was information that he had planted in their minds who knows how long ago, hundreds of years, as part of a long scheme to get this corruption to be done. 
And it is sort of the linchpin that leads us into the next two chapters. Um, and I guess we'll mention briefly that uh, you actually do get a resolution to sort of the Stormcast storyline here. Um, those, like, Gardas is left on the field with, like, 20 of his Stormcast left. Maybe, maybe like, 50. And they are sort of up on this rock, just fighting unending waves, trying to keep themselves alive. And trying to hold this gate so that their brothers aren't damned for eternity. And there's some really, like, cool back and forth because their chapters, uh, sort of saying is only the faithful. Um, so there's a number of callbacks for him shouting, you know, who is the only who can survive in this hell? And his soldiers shouting, only the faithful. And, like, it plays over and over. And it's very cool. It's a very heroic last stand. And in the end, though, Gardas ends up falling. He goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with a greater demon and gets crushed. But in the last moment before his soul shoots back to his ear, he sees from behind his soldiers the remaining Stormcast Eternals from inside the realm of Chaos come running out and assist uh, his remaining beleaguered troops. So the Stormcast hold the gate it is very difficult to do so. They lose a lot of people in doing it, and Garda Steel Soul dies and has to be reforged. Which, you know, we'll pick back up in uh, Act 2. Yeah, this is not the last you see of Garda Steel Soul in this story. No, no, he will end up crossing paths. But, like, at first as I was reading Act 1, I was kind of like, how does this tie into Bellicor? Like, I don't really understand. Like, this is, seems more like a Seraphon book than a... Oh, so as we're getting in, yeah, light bulb. As we're getting into Act Two, um, to like before we can continue with the story, you kind of have to understand who Bellicor is. Um, You've probably seen the model. His new model yeah, looks great. His new model's gorgeous. Uh, Bellicor is the first demon prince, so that means as he was the first person to be blessed by. Not just one chaos god, not just two chaos gods, but all four chaos gods to demonhood, to full demon prince status. Yeah, and that was in the old world, before the old world even. Yeah, before the old world even existed. Like, he is one of the oldest characters in either setting. Uh, <laughs> he is unknowably ancient. And there's even evidence that Bellicor as a character transcends all of these settings. That, like, he he is a the first prince, because he exists in 40k too, but there is evidence that he exists in all of these universes at the same time, and his plans are all associated with all the universes. It's very insane. Um, but in Age of Sigmar, where he's currently at right now, is kind of, like, waning favor. He is not like, he is not favored amongst the Chaos Gods. Like, he is still a demon prince. He's still the first prince. He has a lot of clout. He has a lot of, like, say with a lot of demons and, and all that. But the mortals, the Chaos Mortals of the realms, don't care. They don't care about him. They think he has no power. They no. follow Archeon. Uh, yes. Um, Archeon, who is, like, you've, you guys have probably seen that model also. But he is the figurehead of Chaos in the mortal realms. He is the Chosen Son. Hence his name, the Ever-Chosen. Because uh, he will always be the most favored as far as the title is concerned. And that yeah. rubs Bellacor the wrong way and has forever. Yeah. And on top of that, like, 
Bellicor and Archeon are just drastically different characters. Archeon suits the Chaos Gods because he will hammer something with his head until the wall breaks. And he hasn't ever broken. He just breaks walls. It just takes a while. But he will keep punching it until it is it goes the way he wants it to. Bellicor doesn't. Bellicor schemes. He plans. He he like plants little spies in here. And you notice throughout like the beginning of Act Two, they start describing all of the ways that Bellicor has affected the story. You know, he's the one who kind of got the Seraphon to to do this thing in Shaman to the Silver Tower. He's the one who kind of gave Teclas the information about Nagash so he could cause that little interaction. He's the one who kind of leaked the Varanite out to Marathi so that that would, like, it, it would make all of this, like, Rue Goldberg machine of a plan work. Yeah, I mean, essentially he wanted to get other factions distracted or fighting each other. Because if they were looking elsewhere, they wouldn't be looking at him. Yeah, and he, he does all this because he is trying to pull off a scheme. And that scheme is centuries in the making. And he is trying to cause a chain reaction of destruction from different realm gates to cut off Azir from the realms so that he can make Stormcast Eternals no, no longer immortal. Like mm -hmm. He's trying to, to make it impossible for them to go back and reforge. And in doing so, show to the Chaos Gods that he's the true chosen son. Yes, that he is better than Archeon. He does what Archeon can't. And if he can accomplish this, he will also prevent Archeon, because Archeon is still a mortal, from traveling the realms and doing what Archeon wants to do, which is, you know, take over all the realms. He's just taking his time to do it. So this is this whole big plan that he's got going. But before he can begin doing any of this, he has to figure out one other problem. And that is an interaction he has with Lady Ullander the Mordhark of Grief. Way before all of this, he has a fight with her. He cuts her with the Blade of Shadows and she curses him to kind of sum up a, a longer story. And he can kind of still feel that there, that curse is there. And he can he has a, the feeling that that's going to get in the way of his plan. So he travels to Shaiish through a portal that he shouldn't have access to, like that no one in Shaiish understands, is there. It's a secret portal. That he gained access to from centuries of like politically putting spies in places and figuring it out. Like it's all, this is all coming to this moment. And he goes to Shaiish with an army of chaos that are indebted to him. Um, demons only, no mortals. All these demons are, are following him because they, they see him as the way for them to finally ascend to where they're at. They won't have to share the spoils with mortals anymore. They don't have to work with Archeon. They can just work with, you know, Bellicor and they can cause havoc and mayhem. But first, they need to help him deal with Lady Ollander and the Night Haunt. So he goes to Shais and he goes to this, the Empire of Anguish that Lady Ollander presides over. And he has his forces do a full frontal assault to her, her castle, to her keep, to her citadel. And she find this odd, finds this odd, but it's like, okay, cool. We'll just deal with it. And they're fighting. But she notices that she doesn't see a leader amongst this army. And she notices there's a, wait, why would they attack full front? Like this doesn't, this actually doesn't make sense. Yeah. They can't and win it, in this assault. Yeah, and then it dawns on her, this is a distraction. Like, but what are they distracting me from? And then it, it dawns on her that someone might have found out her deepest secret, her darkest secret. 
where her body is. The only thing that makes her vulnerable. Right? The only way to fully kill the Mortark of Grief is destroy her remains that she keeps in a sanctum. So she just like marshals her forces that she can to immediately run back to her sanctum to, to, to go, oh, oh my god, my my body is going to be desecrated and I'm going to die. And so she runs back to her, her area and she comes across Bellacor and a small force and she cuts through like a, a just straight up attacks with her ghosts, her ghosts and goblins. Well, actually, only ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> all ghosts, no goblin. All, all ghosts. Oops, all ghosts. Uh, all of her ghosts attack, and she just makes a path between them to just beeline to her body. Like she has to stop Bellacor, and she gets to Bellacor, and Bellacor has a sword over her body, and so she does the last minute thing of like reminding him that she he has a, she has a curse on him. She's gonna activate, it. and they do this like Mexican standoff where they're about to like. Either one of them could like really disrupt the other one, and Bellacor just kind of has a moment where he's just like, "We could just work together. We could just make a deal. Like both of us are eternal beings. We can fight about this later. Like we've got forever to fight about this. What if we just work together? Like I've got something you want, and what you want is the souls of the Stormcast Eternals." And what I want is to prevent those souls from being able to go to Azir. I don't care where they go. I've got a plan. We both want something from this. We should team up. And so they do. Um, in kind of a frenemies way. Yeah, it's a night- very tentative alliance. <laughs> it's very tentative. Like, they're not, like, chugging beers and high-fiving now. But, like, they'll work together because they want to deal with the Stormcast. The Stormcast are a thorn in Nick Ash's side. They're the Stormcast for a thorn and chaos aside, but if they work together, they can deal with it. It's really important that this happens because this doesn't, like, to my knowledge, this doesn't happen in the setting. Like, it's very rare for death and chaos to work together. Uh, yeah, I can't think of another time that it's ever happened. Um, generally, they're, you know, chaos wants all the souls to go to them, Nagash wants all the souls to go to him. So, like, they are diametrically opposed almost always, but you know. The as I think Bellacor puts it to Lady Oleander in a very wise way when he tells her that he wants to crush the hope of all of these mortals, and for her who is the Mortark of Grief, hope is repugnant to her. Um, so for her, getting an opportunity to take that from the realms makes it worth putting off the the fist fight with Bellacor for a little while. Yeah, and so. Past there, we're going to fast forward a little bit through what, like, why this becomes a problem. As the Night Haunts start attacking different places all over the Mortal Realms and demon incursions start popping up all over the place to like mess with Realm Gates, it's seemingly random and it's seemingly chaotic. There is no cohesive, like clear way for the, the Mortal Realms to understand what's happening. As you've got like Night Haunt, not necessarily working in tandem with Chaos, but working alongside. And it's just it's just overloading all these outposts and everything. And even causing like demons who are working with mortals to kill their mortals that they are working with to rise up against the forces of order and do other things. Like they're just it's this massive uprising over all of it. But it's all kind of centering around Shaman, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, you see Lumineth losing, everyone losing. 
And there's only one figure who really sees what's going on. And it's a Kaharan overlord. But we'll get into why that's important later. Because more importantly, a group of Stormcast are about to get destroyed <laughs> by Bellicor. Uh, what was the name of the the realm gate that uh, Bellicor attacks? Uh, well, first he he attacks a number of realm gates. Um, that's sort of the Caradron's realization is that all of these quote unquote random attacks end up making it possible for realm gates to be sacked over and over and over again. And the Caradron don't piece together why it's happening. They just notice that gates are being attacked. But so there are a lot of them are hit. But the big one that matters for the story is called the Gate of White Gold. Uh, it's in a city called Prosperia. Uh, it leads. It gives passage between the city of Vindicarum and the northern frontier, uh, which is sort of like a, a narrow strait that the Stormcast want to keep. And that's where sort of all of the all of these realm gates that are hit and all of this chaos that's spewing into the world kind of like comes to a head as Bellicor's full plan is revealed. Yeah, and, and Bellicor starts, like, really implementing everything he wants to do. And we'll touch on this this battle briefly, because the most important part is that Bellicor brings real death to these Stormcast Eternals. Ah, uh, he sure does. And pretty much destroys an entire chamber. He does, actually. Eternals. He destroys yeah. an entire storm host. Yeah, and it is just gone. It is for, like... They're not coming back. They're not reforging. They're gone. And he now has access to this realm gate. And he just... It's the Sigmari Brotherhood, right? Yeah, the Sigmari Brotherhood are just completely destroyed. There is, there's nothing to do. Yeah, they're sort of it. the defenders of the city alongside the Free Guild and the humans and stuff. And they put up a, a strong defense, but they are besieged by tides of demons uh, i mean like a moving carpet of bodies surging towards them uh, both lesser demons greater demons demons from the sky and uh, you know horrible magic they are outnumbered and the stormcast try to hold them back but they are woefully outmatched uh but sort of a lot from this battle up on the up in the sky, you see sort of this roiling reddish brown cloud that's sort of inky like oil come rolling across the sky, kind of like a like a massive storm front. Yeah, um, and as it sort of rolls over the city and envelops the natural sky, uh, you know, Stormcast die and that's common for stormcast they've been reforged over and over and over but when they shoot upwards the bolt of lightning can't penetrate the crowd the cloud uh, and it will like start to scream and dart back and forth across the sky trying to find a way through and it can't until eventually in the clouds you see these huge disembodied faces before dark hands will grab these souls and pull them it apart you know claiming them for chaos for all of eternity bringing real death to every stormcast that dies while under this cloud uh well and also that's where Rognor, the grim hailer starts flying in and just stuffing these souls into like uh lanterns and just taking these souls from the gash yeah um like it's it's wild they might have 
been able to hold out for a little while, if not for the the terrible appearance of the ghosts. Um, you know, it's one thing to sort of like hold a shield wall against an enemy that's sort of coming at you head on. But it's another when ghosts come at you from under the ground and they are incorporeal and can come at you from any angles. Whatever room you try to hold yourself up in, whatever fortress you try to hide behind, whatever cave you try to find refuge in, it doesn't matter. They fly through the walls. And these hordes allow chaos to take them down. And uh, they claim some of the souls for themselves, which is, you know, a, a kind of callback to the, uh, the soul wars where Nagash was harvesting uh, Stormcast souls. Um, and, like, that was the plan. Like, that was part of the deal, right? For for Oleander and, and Bellicor is they get to keep some of the souls. Like, that's fair. Yep, that's the payment for them causing havoc across the realms to keep the, the big players distracted. Um, so... That's most of Act 2. And it's really most of Act 2 is setting up for what's going to happen in Act 3. Uh, much like Act 1 kind of sets up the stage of like setting up like why this plan's going to work. Right? Mm-hmm. And they talk about like Stormcast. Like, like yes, Stormcast died. But it, the third act is almost entirely one battle. <laughs> it is. It is. It's it's sort of like the Battle of Helm's Deep, where it's one long fight that just has multiple stages. Um, yeah. And instead of sort of playing this for you piece by piece, we'll just hit the big points. But I think there are two other minor things that occur in the second act that's worth mentioning. Um, one is Gardish Steel Soul finally gets to talk to the Seraphon. Yep, that's right. Um, he flies back. Like Obviously, like I said, he gets killed in trying to hold the gate. And he is shot back to the realm of heaven where he is remade. And he is irate about being left by the Seraphon, who he thought would be an ally. I thought these lizards were supposed to be cool. I thought these lizards were cool, man. I thought <laughs> we were bros. Like, he's he can't let it go. Um, and especially because the Seraphon worshipped Dracothian, sort of this celestial dragon. And the Stormcast are allies with Dracothian. Sigmar is allies with Dracothian. So it makes it even more difficult for him. And he heads to the shrine to Dracothian that is on a mountaintop where you could best see the stars with no light to obstruct them. And he feels a compulsion to sort of step into this big pool of ice-cold water at the top where the reflection of the stars from above him and the stars themselves make it look like there are stars encompassing him in all directions. And he is given visions from across the realms where his body and it stays on, you know, there, but his mind is pulled from it. And he is sent hurtling through the cosmos in a realm void of time or space where only, where only thought matters. And he gets visions of chaos wreaking havoc across the realms and bringing destruction and corruption. And he's trying to understand it all. And then, you know, he blinks after what could be one second or 3,000 years, timeless, as I said. Uh, and above him is the silhouette of Lord Croak. And uh, he realizes that Lord Croak is the one who's giving him this knowledge. 
who through blinding pain is directly downloading information into Gardas's head. And Gardas has shown a vision of the living city of Vindicarum. It's a, it's an order city where sort of the most faithful of Sigmar's uh, followers live along with a whole storm host. And he sees the city destroyed to a man and the entirety of the Stormcasts there, the celestial vindicators destroyed. It's an absolute loss for the forces of order and Gardas can't allow it to stand. And he asks the Seraphon if they will assist him. And again, I love this answer. Uh, normally you would get, you would expect like an explanation or a big dramatic monologue, but croak says one word. No. And Gardas yeah, like, is sit hurtling back to his body. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's kind of the subtext there that the whole reason Croak is showing him is because he cannot do anything about this. Because Croak, similar to Belcor, is playing a long game. And we know Croak is going to be in the next book. So we're assuming that there's a lot of stuff going on in this book with Croak that we will see the ramifications for in the next Broken Realms book, too. Yeah, Croak has a plan. Um, yeah. I'm not sure what it is yet, but he's obviously working something. But... He deems Gardas worthy enough for a mortal to work with that he gives him the information to do something about it. Um, and Gardas goes back to his brothers and tells them, you know, Vindicarum is going to be laid siege to, and it's going to be laid waste to. And brothers are going to die real death there. And if we go, we will likely also die real death. Um, who will come with me? And his soldiers reply with their catchphrase, only the faithful. And all of them go. Which I think is a super cool moment. Like, I am I am not usually one for this, like, storm host, but I gotta admit, they're super freaking cool. <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's very neat where, like, they are willing to, if they can save any of their brothers, they're willing to go fight. Yeah, they will put themselves in the line in the most real way possible. Uh, so they sort of gear up to drop into the siege battle that we're going to get into in a moment. But the other player that we mentioned in Act 2 was the Caradron Overlords. Uh, you know, they, for those of you who are newer to the setting, uh, they are one of the the two dwarven races of Age of Sigmar. Essentially, when uh, the, the Age of Chaos happened many, many millennia ago, which was when Chaos ripped into the realms for the first time, uh, Races had to find ways to survive. And for the dwarves, some of them went underground into these like magma holds that were really hard to assail. And they just stayed there for the entirety of the Age of Chaos. They became the Fire Slayers. Some, however, grabbed their ships and floated into the sky. Realizing that, you know, there are less threats up there. And they stayed there. And over time... Because they felt that their god wouldn't help them, they came to rely on technology and science and have become their own society that live on skyships and they're like steampunk dwarves floating around on balloons and exploring the realms trying to find their favored resource, Aethergold. And they are located all over the realms. They, they have trading hubs in most places and they have a lot of deals with the... Uh, the people of the realms. 
Um, but we specifically follow, uh, we sort of, it brings us to a ship called the Redoubtable, which is a, a newer ship from the Caradron Overlords who is caught in the blast, sort of like at the outer edges of the explosion of the Silver Tower and survives. Because it's a newer ship, it can absorb some of the energies. And they are, as they are flying over the realm, they're watching the night haunt attack what looks like random places, as well as these demons attacking random places. And because they're so high up, they have like a bird's eye view. And they're watching sort of what's unfolding. And they're starting to suspect that something's not right. Yeah, there's something off here. Like there, there, there is a pattern that is visible, but if you weren't seeing it from a literal bird's eye view, you wouldn't be able to tell. Yeah, you would have no clue. Um, and this is where one of my favorite, well, well, what is probably my favorite plot thread start, kind of turns its head. Uh, you follow uh, sort of, we'll call him the captain of the ship. They have different rankings in their actual lore, but he's a, uh, the captain. The, the guy who leads this ship, who owns it, uh, is talking to some of his crew members who are starting to say, you know, we don't think this is right. And from behind him, a, a dwarf speaks up who is wearing the armor of a, like, basic entry-level recruit. However, when this uh, dwarf says they're attacking the gates, uh, the captain turns and looks at him, and he kind of thinks, like, who are you? Like, I... This guy. Like, <laughs> this fucking guy. <laughs> I'm a good captain. I know all of my crewmates. I know where I hired all of them. I know their skills. I know what they're good at. I know their histories. Where did I hire you for, uh... Well, he does have a point. And like this, his, these questions sort of are wiped from his mind. Like his brain very intensely questions who this is. And then it just sort of fogs over. And then it just goes, ah, oh, you know what? Never mind. Man, I this don't guy sounds really this. smart. We should listen to him. This guy knows what he's talking about. Um, and like... All of a sudden, this new arriving dwarf, this old dwarf who is sort of dark and craggy skinned with tattoos all over his arms and uh, hands and knuckles and fingers, um, is just now part of the crew. And through his few words, he convinces everyone something's not right. Um, right. And as they see the destruction begin to unfold in Act 2... Uh, and they even pick up some fire slayers who are sort of like the last remaining like 15 or 20 fire slayers from in a huge lodge. Like they are told firsthand the realm is at danger. Okay. So like I want to touch on that for a second because it was one of my favorite stories in this book. I'm a huge chaos stand. Like I love chaos, but I almost went out and was just like, I'm just going to get some carried on overlords. Like, I know, right? Like the, these these fire slayers are besieged by demons in all like all around, and they've been fighting for days. Like they they go out of their way to say it, talk about how these these fire slayers have been fighting for like four days, and they're going to be murdered by these Sinchian demons. And these ships from the Caradon Overlords, like their airships, float down nearby, firing guns and cannons, and just laying down suppressive fire as smaller gun hailers start like dropping down to evacuate as many fire slayers out as they can. And there's just groups of fire slayers that go, no, somebody has to stay on the ground and, and fight while you all get in those ships. And they make the ultimate sacrifice 
to save as many of their brethren as I could. And it's just like, I can see, I saw the whole scene play out in my head to like fortunate son. <laughs> right? Yeah, I love it. I love the idea. You know, they zip down, they hook ropes around the fire slayers they can, they pull them up and out of there. Um, but there's only a few left alive. And they, you know, tell them what happened, that they had this beautiful magma hold that was full of their forges and their families for thousands of years. And this de demon and his army came through and turned it all to slag for seemingly no reason. Um, and it sort of adds to the idea that, all right, something's not right. Like, no one just does this to do yeah, this. Yeah, this was not just a random attack like this was random but also targeted yeah this was very coordinated and they decide that they're going to go back and warn the rest of the caradron overlords because you know this could be a th genuine threat to all of the ko in the realms uh which i think is super interesting um yeah and we'll pick that one back up uh probably halfway through uh, chapter three. So yeah, as we mentioned before, chapter three is really a siege battle. Um, we could sit here for a while talking about like the battle for Vindicarum, but the big important ones that I like the big important pieces of information are that Vindicarum is a city that is full of uh, living humans who sort of worship Sigmar. Uh, many of whom are like religious zealots, some of whom are professional soldiers. And uh, it is largely a, a sort of fortress city to allow for trade in the region. And uh, it's kind of built in a caldera. Mm -hmm. So uh, for those who don't know, it's like a bowl. Essentially, like the city is in the bowl and there's an iron curtain um, or wall of defenses around the top, the lip of the bowl, to make it as defensible as possible. Yeah. So it it is a hard city to siege. Um and it's even more so because on top of all of these living humans, you have a full storm host who lives here. This is their home city, uh, the Celestial Vindicators. And normally, that's a tough cookie to crack. Uh, yeah. You would be hard-pressed to take that city with most other forces. Uh, however, before the battle, um, you know, just behind the city... Uh, lightning strikes and a second storm host drops. It's Garda Steel Soul and all of his stormcast. And he vows to reinforce the city along with the Celestial Vindicators. Um, but after they drop, that inky cloud begins to pour over the city as the sort of everything from the other realms, like the realms of chaos, is pouring through. And, uh, you know, this is punched up a little more when Bellicor has some Skaven ninjas uh, attack the inside of another silver tower just to mess with the ley lines of energy. Um, and he, like, sort of cranks this corruption up to 11 so that yeah. the entirety Amplifies of the sky it. is covered and there is no escape for anyone in the city. Um and in fact, chaos is so thick here when the corruption rolls in that demons just start ripping out of reality itself. Like, yeah, they rins, just start popping up. Yeah. In the middle of open air, a rip into chaos realm will open and demons will pour out. Um, 
it is that corrupted, which is sort of a horrible way to start a siege for the defenders. Um, and like as a as a moment to touch on with the demons, one of the other things that's very impressive about Bellicor and what he does here is that he gets demons that have been feuding with each other for centuries to just go, we're going to go do this now. Like they stop fighting each other and enter these rifts or show up to this fight and they converge on this spot, even though they've been fighting each other for hundreds and thousands of years in these chaos realms, they come to the material realm to work for Bellacor. Yeah. Whether through manipulation or sort of paying them in favors or whatever, or subjugation, uh, he gets demons from all four chaos gods to assail the city for like a, a way to frame it is that Bellicor is expending a lot of political capital to pull this off. And on top of marshalling all of his forces on top of like spending all this time and energy, like this is supposed to be his masterpiece. Yeah. And at the start, it looks good for him. Um, the defenders are very, very steadfast and many of them are experienced. So, and they also have multiple layers of walls inside the city, which, you know, gives them places to fall back to, uh, which, you know, normally might be enough, but it's just not here. Uh, the fight sort of starts proper, and uh, obviously everybody is fighting from the walls, and cannons open up along with rocket batteries and hand gunners with long rifles, and an incredible amount of like pow black powder weaponry since hurtling explosive shot into the demons. And it turns many of them to pulp along with sort of like the lightning archers from the Stormcast, along with bolts of magic from the, the mage defenders of the city. And they do wreak a heavy toll on the demons, but they just keep pouring in. Um, it's all, as fast as you kill them, more are being repopulated. So it is a nonstop teeming horde on the outer edge of the city. And as sort of the battle wears on, breaches are knocked in the wall, uh, through these giant demons that come storming up to the gates that are almost as big as the wall itself and bashing holes in it. And uh, it's sort of interesting. They talk about how many of these are sealed with these metal mages that will take molten metal and sort of splash it across the hole and then solidify it uh, to, like, stop the gap. And I thought that was super sick. It's very, it's very cool. Uh, but those mages cannot be everywhere. And while they seal a lot of the holes, the holes keep getting poked in their defenses. And before long, the incredible weight of demons is sent pouring upon them, and the first walls break. And the demons sort of ransack their way into the city proper. And everybody has to fall back to the secondary walls. Uh, many of whom just don't make it. Um, oh yeah, the, the mortal cost of this, even this first stage, is huge uh yeah it untold amounts of souls are lost in you know heroic last stands that just can't get away from the demons fast enough um however i would say a fair number reached the secondary walls because they were prepared for this like this was an inevitability 
there were sort of battle strategies put in place before this happened. But then the first big swing of the battle occurs. Uh, as I've talked about, this city has a ton of cannons and sort of uh, black powder weaponry that it uses as its primary form of defenses. It does make it a difficult city to besiege. But it means that there is a ton of black powder stored within the city. Oh, yeah. An incredible amount. And um, this black powder has to be stored somewhere. So they store it in what is a pretty safe place. Or at least what is a difficult place to get to for a normal army. However, this is not a normal army. <laughs> um, Bellicor summons one of his... A uh, favored Zinch demons, sort of this capering fire demon on a disc that flies through the sky. And uh, he dispatches this demon with the singular goal of setting that magazine where they keep all of the black powder alight. And the demon unfortunately does so with incredible efficiency. Um, oh, yeah. Guarding this are a number of sort of free guild uh, soldiers, which are like the normal humans, along with uh, Stormcast Eternals, including Loris Grimm, who is uh, the right-hand man, the lieutenant to Gardas Steelsoul. He is his longtime friend and ally, his steadfast brother-in-arms, uh, and a really cool character uh, in the novel series, The Realm Gate Wars, when Gardas did that big sacrifice play I talked about at the beginning of the podcast and like jumped into Nurgle's garden to save everybody. Loris Grimm was actually who we followed at that point. Uh, sort of he had to take up the mantle of leadership, despite not being sure if he was worthy of it. And he was a very cool character to kind of come to be sort of the vessel for the reader. And you can't help but like him because he is so sort of steadfast in his duty. He is a, a good soldier. And you he is the one on top of these battlements when the Zinch demons arrive. And they kill a lot of these demons out of the sky, but all it takes is a single flame to make it through. And eventually one does. And there is a colossal explosion and... The wall goes flying to pieces. Um, you know, chunks of concrete the size of buildings are sent hurtling through the city. The shock wave and the pressure of it kills many instantaneously just as it like rolls over them. And Loris Grimm is sent hurtling through the skies, toppling end over end. His sort of, uh, his celestial hawk hound killed before him before he is crushed in the city below um and this uh it sort of throws gardas off like he is convinced no one can survive that and he just lost his friend oh and yeah it means permanent death in this and, battle and on top of that like as that is happening bellicor makes his appearance on the battlefield like, yeah he, this is when he steps up to really kind of push it in and, and and push through. Yeah, because whereas the first wall falling was expected and there were strategies for it, this explosion was not on the strategy. Um, whatever strategy might have been in place was destroyed when this huge explosion wrecked the black powder weapons. Um, and what follows is a 
a frantic sort of flight through the city as everyone on the walls tries to flee. Um, and whereas sort of the first uh, retreat was a little more ordered, here the book does a good job of showing that everyone's desperate. Um, while also uh, showing the difference between uh, the celestial vindicators who live in the city, the sort of cruel, uh, I'd say murderous Stormcast and uh, Gardish Steel Souls chapter. Um, in particular, like it talks about the Celestial Vindicators. They would do these suicide charges into the demons uh, just to rack up incredible kill counts. Sort of these mindless murderers. And they're, they do rack up incredible kill counts, but they, they also, still die. Yeah, they die. They just die. And it also leaves uh, sort of the citizens to their own devices. <laughs> um, whereas it's fun to see, like, Stormcast, who on the table, look exactly the same. Reed and the novel fight differently. Whereas, like, uh, Gardas's Stormcast, as they're running through the city, obviously, it's just groups fleeing for their lives. Like, five Stormcast will meet up with ten gunners, and the Stormcast will immediately turn and make a shield wall. And without any communication, all of the gunners will start firing over their shoulders. And they will work together to become more effective. Uh, and kind of give these little pockets of resistance across the city. Uh, as they're trying to work their way towards the center. Um, yeah, and about now is when Garda's Steel Soul, in a rage, just goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Belcor. Yes. Uh, and... Uh, it's the it worst. Is, it's not a fight he can win. No. Like, he knows it too. Like he goes into this fight against Belcor going, I'm going to die here. Yeah. Like this is, um, this is it. And Gardas might not have taken the bait. However, when, like, as we said, everybody was fleeing to the center of the city uh, and some made it. And of those there, one of them was Gardas Steel Soul. And Bellicor comes forward along with his army. And he, dragging behind him is, uh, Loris Grimm, sort of stripped of his armor and chained, covered in blood and broken. Uh, Gardas sees his oldest friend dragged before him by Bellicor's hand. and Almost in a taunting way as Bellicor is just going, uh, look what I've done. This, is, this, this will happen to all of you. And as sort of Gardas looked into his friend's eyes for the last time, uh, Grimm gives him a, you know, a thin smile and a nod of goodbye before Bellicor rams his blade through Grimm's chest, giving him true death. Uh, and it, Gardas loses it, loses it, uh, and decides that, you know, if Grimm's going to die where he goes, I will go and I will do so attacking you. Um, and he starts fighting Bellicor in this, he in what is an incredible duel for a Stormcast Eternal leader against a Demon Prince. I mean, Gardas is severely outmatched, and the book is very clear that he is as well. Uh, but he does get a couple of licks in, which is fairly impressive. However, for every strike he makes, Bellicor makes one too. And Bellicor, being so much bigger and pumped up on Chaos Magic, is winning. Oh, yeah. Because Bellicor isn't just a strong combatant against Gardas Cecil. He is empowered 
by this storm. He is empowered by the chaos around him that he has created. He is like probably the most powerful he's been on a battlefield physically. He's not normally a very powerful physical character, but here he is. And also, he's a magic user, and he's using magical tricks to sort of obfuscate where he's actually at in this duel. So a lot of times, yep. Gardas' strikes just hit air when it looked like they would hit Bellicor. <clears throat> and this is where we pick up with uh, the Caradron overlords. Um, in, in this moment of need, we hop back to the Caradron, where, as we mentioned, they were going back to sort of the the Admiral's Council, uh, which is, you know, the biggest skyport that they have, that is neutral grounds, where the code is, where issues of the code are uh, sort of hammered out by the eight admirals of the Caradron Overlords. And uh, they these admirals get together in a council to talk about this threat to the mortal realms, and you can think of it sort of like uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, where all the captains get together. Um, it is a room where a lot of people, with a lot of power and ego, shout at each other for incredible amounts of time. <laughs> Mostly um, about money. like Oh yeah, oftentimes about money and politic. Um, and uh, when the story kind of zooms into them, this is where they're at. Uh, some of the admirals have said essentially... We should try to stop this. If this happens, we are going to be screwed. And we like, should this assist. This is bad for business. <laughs> yeah, we should assist our allies. Like, even at the worst, at the best, this will be awful for uh, us to trade because there will be no one left alive to trade with. At worst, it will kill us. Um, and others essentially say, eh, but why should we risk ourselves? Like, if we stick our neck out, then we're screwed anyway. And they're sort of deadlocked. And nothing's happening. And then the door to this chamber kicks open. And walking in is that little captain that we mentioned before. And behind it, behind him is that old wizened dwarf. Uh, I think his name's Gromthy. And as they come walking into the chamber, you know, they, these admirals start to shout that this is a violation of the code. That you can't be here. This is for admirals only. You aren't worthy of being in this room. And, you know, they're getting ready to lay into him when the old dwarf behind uh, the captain essentially, like, raises his fist into the air holding a document. And when he speaks, he doesn't shout, but everyone shuts up. They can't help themselves. They don't even realize they're doing it. They all... Yeah, they're just, like, in awe, but they don't know why. Yeah, they all fall silent. And uh, he informs them that you know, these winds all pulling to the city could pull all of the aether gold that we want to one place. And instead of mining it all over, we might be able to mine it in one spot and make a pretty profit. And all at once, these people who have been arguing for days go, man, that fellow makes a good point. <laughs> that mm. makes a lot of sense. Wow, what a guy. What a pal. Oh, oh sounds like a super capitalist move to me, buckaroo. Uh. <laughs> Everyone is all of a sudden on the same page. And it kind of leaves us to like, oh, what's going to happen? But this is where they come in at the final battle when Gardas is battling Bellicor and Bellicor has broken through the rest of the city. And it's really just this like circle of survivors holding out in the middle, trying to buy themselves their last seconds of breath. Uh, above the clouds part 
and down come the Caradron overlords. And huge fleets of ships. They bring everybody. They bring everybody. Uh, so it is just skyship upon skyship and dwarves and uh, sort of like floating apparatuses attached to these ships, hooking a ride. And from behind the demon army, the cannons open up and aether shot and explosions rip the hordes apart. And an almost unfathomable amount of firepower is dumped upon this city. Uh, so much so that they are actually worried they will level what's left if they continue firing in this way. Um, so they descend closer and like guys on sort of like rappel lines hop over the side and start to drop down. And where they see defenders, like I mentioned, like Stormcast Eternals with shield walls and people firing over their shoulders, they sort of zip line down to the ground and add their fire into these little bastions of resistance trying to create little pockets of safety throughout the city. Um, and some head towards the middle, where, you know, most of the demons are with Bellicor. And from the ships come the last uh, fire slayers that were left. And you get this really great moment where they have sworn to sell their lives to get revenge for their lodge. And they see the greater demon who has done it. And... Uh, these dwarves and their little diapers and their runes that are blazing with power across their arms leap from these skyships to the ground and sprint as one towards this unimaginable monstrosity. And half of them die just getting there, but it doesn't matter. They climb him like a tree. They <laughs> ride him to the ground and they chop him asunder. And it is a kick-ass moment um, to see sort of the skyships descend. But once these Caradron overlords get here, this is actually a threat for Bellicor. Like, well, victory was in hand, and these guys are here to disrupt it. And yeah. uh, now he has to respond. Like, the battle that was over is now not over. He has to respond. He can't just toy with Gardas forever. Yeah, um, so he he kind of just uh, kind of throws Gardas to the side and charges one of these frigates, just uh, just completely like he does the math of, I can still win this, I just have to destroy these with my own hand, and, and I have I to do it apart, now. Yeah, if I take out enough of these frigates, we still win. Like, and we just take out more Kahar, like we take out Kahar on Overlords. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. We'll do this. So he he attacks this ship. And he's clawing at it, and he's ripping up at it, and he's stabbing it with a sword and everything else. Like, it's this cool aerial battle as, like, people on the ship are, like, shooting guns at him and everything else. Like, it's a very cool moment. If you read it in the book, it is, ah, uh, it is a choice. Uh, but he stops for a second, right? And he stops because he sees a specific figure. And Joe, I'm sure you really want to touch on this because of how much you love dwarves. So why don't you do the honors? Uh, yes, yes. Um, like, so Bellicor flies through the skies and he rips a couple of ships apart because he is very powerful and he can cut them down. But when he gets to the ship that we've cut, like that we've been following, the Redoubtable, uh, sort of like John mentioned, people go to the rails and they try to fire back at him and he cuts them down and... Some try to attack him with melee weapons and he cuts them down. And he grabs the captain and he is sort of pumping 
dark thoughts into this captain's head about how he's unworthy and he doesn't deserve to have his captainhood and how his troops are going to rebel against him. And he's about to cut him down when the captain in a haze, sort of as his, he is on his back looking across the deck as this magic is pouring into his head. And he's sort of blinking and trying to see through the fuzz as Bellicor has turned away from him and is looking at a, the, a dwarf on the deck with all of his focus. And it's that old dwarf that has been with the story the entire time, Gromthy. Uh, Grom Everyone else is kind of panicking at this point because you're in a sky boat that is starting to go down. And that generally because means... a giant demon is hanging out on your <laughs> ship. He has uh, messed with your yacht, and you're gonna sink. Uh, and when you sink, this means you become sidewalk pizza. <laughs> you will splatter. Uh, so this is what I would call a high stress scenario for most folks. I would call this a hostile work environment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hazard pay is called for, um, and everyone else is panicking except for Gromthy, uh, who is walking across the deck. The only thing in his hand, a basic blacksmith's hammer. And he is eyeing Bellicor. And as he's walking across the deck towards Bellicor, it's almost like he starts to grow bigger. Uh, like he starts to get larger in size than this little dwarven body would have you think. And Bellicor kind of looks at this dwarf walking towards him with this blacksmith's hammer. And all at once, he flexes his wings and flies off the ship. Well, there's a little detail there. And that is that the captain of the ship looks into the eyes of Bellicor and for the briefest second, sees fear. Yep. He's like, it, like Bellicor is scared. Genuinely terrified of whatever this Gromthy fella is. And um, he flies off the ship. And doesn't just fly off the ship, but he leaves the field entirely. Uh, he leaves his demons below to, you know, wreak whatever havoc they can. But he gets out of Dodge. Oh, yeah. Uh, once he's seen Gromthy, like, his his uh, sort of risk-to-reward ratio is turned on its head. And he flees. And the, the, the captain who sees this happen then sort of tries to stay conscious but can't, and passes out. Um, and then the, the Caradron overlords come down, and they begin to mop up what demons are left. And that is the end of the siege of Vindicarum. And uh, what's left of the city is really rubble. Um, there are maybe a couple of buildings that are left mostly intact, but most of them are turned to dust or cracks of concrete. Uh, and most of these storm hosts are decimated. A good half of the storm cast engaged in this fight are just gone. Yeah, I think they said, like, for the Celestial Vindicators, like, one in nine survived. And uh, for uh, the Steel Souls, uh, the, the Guard of Steel Souls chap uh, storm host only has 25% strength left. The rest are gone permanently. Yeah. Um, and so combined, like only 50% of the storm Stormcast forces that, that engage in this fight are still there. Yeah, it is a Pyrrhic, 
pyrrhic success. And for humans, uh, they don't even give a, a ratio, but let's just assume very few made it. Like yeah, the, the vast majority of the mortals um, lived. Most of the mortals are just dead. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, the city is slowly but surely being reclaimed. The Caradron overlords are assisting. Uh, the Stormcast Eternals that are left are assisting, and there are demons still hiding across the city in the rubble. So it is there is much cleanup work to be done. Uh, and as the story wraps up, you come to find that the the Caradron overlords were correct, and you know, in Gromthy's direction, that all of these winds pulling the Aether Gold to the center does mean that they don't have to find it all over; they could just mine it in one big place. And they use this uh, sort of they use the the goodwill that they get from saving the city uh, to negotiate a contract to be allowed to mine all that uh, gas up above the city. Uh, and they also agree to teleport the storm, to, no, not teleport them home, but to take the Stormcast Eternals wherever they need to go for a price. And that's sort of where we leave Vindicarum. Uh, but there is a, a little conversation that I think is delightful uh where it the at, the captain from the battle wakes up and it's sort of after the fight and he goes sort of looking around the city and there is Gromthy uh, sort of in the rubble smoking his pipe uh, and Gromthy warns him that there are grim days ahead um but that the Caradron overlord came here in a, uh, how, what's the quote here? But you came here together in a common cause. And that's a beginning. Mayhap there's hope for the Dawi yet. And that word Dawi kind of sounds weird to the captain. Because that's an old world phrase that isn't really used. Yeah, that's a, that's, huge that hint. hasn't been said in hundreds of years. Yeah, it's not used at all. Um, and the captain kind of says, yeah, well, it worked out well. Like, we can leverage these people into kind of giving us what we need. Um, and the Arcanaut Gromthy looks at him kind of disapprovingly. Um, and let me just go ahead and read this here. Uh, is this not what, uh, you wanted after all for us to leverage against them? You told us to come here. It's just business. Uh, by the code, you think we should have fought and died here for nothing but empty gestures of solidarity? How would that keep the redoubtable afloat or the sky ports themselves for that matter? Um, and, you know, he sort of looks at the people below and admonishes them for being landslogger and says that he only puts his trust rather than in gods and faith in a freshly fueled ship and open horizon. And Gromthy replies, I suppose I cannot grudge you that. I only hope it's enough to get you through what's to come. It seems there's nothing I can teach you. Good fortune, Beardling. Mayhaps we'll meet again in time and uh as the arcanaut well as like the captain turns to look to the arcanaut the arcanaut's gone he disappears and the only thing left of him is the smell of his pipe smoke uh and i think that the use of the word dawi for me is a huge hint of who this is and i think it is my favorite little uh plot point throughout this book uh that combined with sort of his uh, ability to kind of leverage the dwarves who are legendarily stubborn under most circumstances. Uh, 
combined tells us that for it, my money, dollars to donuts, is that this is Grungni, one of the two gods of the dwarves. Oh, yeah. Who has come back to the feet, who has like come back to the mortal realms to lead his children in a more direct way. And that's got a whole lot of ramifications for the setting as a whole. But on the Bellicor side of things, he retreats. He goes back to kind of lick his wounds. He brings some of the prisoners with him. He tortures them um, to try to, like, make himself feel better. He's a super dark, fucked up guy. Um, but he's, he cannot help but think he's hearing the laughter of the gods at him. That He failed at his ultimate prize, his masterpiece. He was outdone at the very end. Uh, but to assuade his own ego, he talks about how... It was outside of his control. He could not have predicted this. This could not have... There was no way to have thought that a being this powerful could show back up. And in the book, it's clear. Bellicor sees this being as incredibly powerful. In some ways, he says, the most powerful being to be on the battlefield currently. Uh, which is a wild concept. That this uh, being... So good. ...is so powerful that Bellicor himself is almost more scared of him than he, how much he hates Akron. Uh, well, I mean, it is a god. Like, well, obviously, I think it's a god. And, yep. you know, a god, not just in the heavens, but on the field. Uh, that's a whole lot of power to throw around. That's a lot of weight to throw around. Especially, not only in terms of, like, his raw combat power, but in his ability to marshal his, you know, usually incredibly stubborn child, like, lineages to work together. Which are... Very effective in the few times where you could get them to cooperate. Yeah, and Bellicor continues to go on talking about how he, like, the the actual victories he made. Because as, though he loses, like, he retreats at the end, he does accomplish a significant amount. Bindicarum is all but destroyed. It's going to take a long time to rebuild it. Uh, the Stormcasts are, you know, horribly crippled by this. And he goes into talking about how this proves a point, and that point is Stormcast Eternals are not immortal. They can experience real death on a massive scale. And that pro that produces an opportunity for other cities to fall, more sacrifices to be made. That this, he tries to reframe this not as a loss, but as an opportunity to continue doing this in the future. And he kind of, like, I assume when they say this part in the book that I see him kind of look at the screen and smile as it says, there would be other cities to fall and other sacrifices to offer. The Dark Master's ascension has merely been delayed. A cruel smile played across the demon's face as he began to consider the opportunities that now lie within his grasp. Yes, these would be the most interesting times, indeed. Kind of belying that, that Bellicor will do more in the future and that Vindicarum was kind of the first step for him. Now he's going to think in a grander plan. He knows this works. What if he does this, but bigger, Ooh -hoo -hoo. which would be very interesting. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, I think the book was incredibly interesting to read and it was super fun to like read the battle descriptions. Um, However, what really has me excited is what this could herald in the future, which, yeah, who knows? I mean, are the dwarves going to get a new faction? Maybe. 
Um, or are they just going to like combine the Fire Slayers and Caradron Overlords into one book? Maybe. Um, what is the implication that Stormcast Eternals uh, can die permanently in a way that can possibly spread across the realms? Mm. Well, I think that like uh, that my predictions from this book is that Stormcast Eternals will stop being leaned upon so heavily to respond to every situation. Um, and that they'll be more sparing in their use. Uh, and on top of that, I think that the introduction is Bellicor of Bellicor as a major player, because he's existed in the lore, but he has been a major player for Chaos, changes up how Chaos works. Because right now, Archeon and Bellicor are some of the, really the only Chaos characters. Some still nice stuff going on, but it's not big. And I think that that opens up a lot of stuff in the future with them. Yeah, and I do. I like our. Um, I like Bellacor as a character a whole lot. I think he is more interesting as an antagonist than Archeon. Like he was infinitely more interesting to read about here than any book I've ever read that had like Archeon in it because Archeon's a one-note villain. Well, Archeon's the guy who like he wants to dominate the mortal realms, stay immortal, get all of the power of the Chaos Gods, and basically become like the God King over all the mortal realms. Like, that's his plan. That's what he wants. Uh, Bellicor wants to destroy all mortals. Like, like not kill all of them, clearly, but he wants to isolate all of them and force them into an eternity of suffering. Like, Bellicor is a lot more of, like, like a, a manifestation of, like, a devil-like character who is just mean like he is just hateful like he he cares not for mortals he does not see them as worthy of existence he sees them as just flesh and just a, a battery like their suffering they produce feeds him and feeds the chaos gods so he will continue to find the most ways of making them suffering and the reason he wants to get rid of these stormcasts is because they impede him in that and uh as a character the way he goes about doing that is not by punching stuff and just fist fighting dudes in the parking lot. Like, no, he, he makes plans. He creates like conniving situations and he, he pits people against one another. And he, he's kind of a, a insidious enemy. He's not just powerful, which makes him interesting in a narrative sense. Yeah. And I don't know. I have no idea what he's going to do next from here. Um, but I'm interested to see if he like starts to take this corruption and push it to other realms, um, or at least try to. And then obviously I want to see who is going to push back against that. Yeah. I think that what's going on and what Bellacor kind of like takes, like opens up as a can of worms, gives us an opportunity to see some like real big heroism out of the, the forces of order and see what happens. Cause a, a lot of it, a lot of them are just fractured. Like, especially with Marathi betraying everyone, like, there's, they're going to have to step up. They're going to have to step up more together. And the Lumineth can't just win every fight for everyone. No. Um, and they're kind of spent after their most recent outing. Yeah. And Stormcast are now, too. And there's not many forces of order left. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Sylvaneth, who have been slowly grinded down by the siege of Nurgle to the realm, so... Yeah, overall, I, I enjoyed this book immensely. 
um, even more that I enjoyed uh, Techless, and I think it was sort of up there on par with Marathi in terms of story, and uh, it's got me all sorts of excited for Kragnos, and for people out there listening, for, you know, the two of you who make it to the end of these extra long videos, uh, I would love to know, one, if you're into this really, really long form content where we tell you most of the story, or if you would prefer us to cut this down, because we would like to also cover Kragnos, uh, and having a little bit of knowledge about which way you would prefer us to cover it would be immensely helpful. Um, we're more than happy to talk about it in long form again, if y'all like, but you know, it's just kind of hard to see kind of what people want from uh, this side of the recording screen. Yeah. So any information, we would greatly appreciate it. Well, uh, other than that, you can just come and send us messages on Twitter. You know, send us DMs, reach out to us on Instagram. YouTube uh, comments. YouTube comments, follow, subscribe, like our stuff, share it with your friends. It helps uh, other people find the podcast, which yeah. we appreciate. We're yeah. we're still growing. We're still going to, we're trying to get as many folks as we can to listen. It'd be great. And any help, we appreciate. Um, but for now, I think that's been all of our opinions. Bonafide Kentucky Fried. And we'll see y'all next time.